Amen. Now, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. We have begun a series in this book. Last week was our first week. We looked at just the first verse and considered an overview of the whole book. And we said that what Malachi will say, or God through Malachi, will trouble us. It will at times be tough to hear. It will make us examine our hearts and our relationship with God. If you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge you and correct your thinking, we said, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? Tim Keller said, this way, said it this way, only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your own imagination? Well, tonight we consider the wonderful subject of God's love, yet its declaration comes in the same breath as one of the hardest statements in the Bible, the declaration of his hate. And so we have a lot on our plate this evening. I want you to consider the love of the Lord from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. Hear now the word of God. I have loved you says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Amen. This is God's eternal and everlasting word. Flawless in all its words. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, help us tonight, we pray. We pray that you would speak grace and love to our hearts. We, we ask that should we be troubled, you would come and heal us, calm us, give us much good news in the midst of difficult words. I pray that you would help us to understand, help us to see you aright, forgive us should we err, but keep my lips in line with your word and grant all of our hearts meditations to be acceptable in your sight, O Lord our rock, and our redeemer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to see four things about God's love tonight. I want you to see its profession, its preference, its preservation, and its proclamation. 
I want you to see in the first place the profession of God's love in verse 2 as he himself declares it openly and freely. Look at verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. And, and the I have loved you there is I have loved you and I do love you. That's the import of the meaning. And we need him to speak this way to us as he speaks to the Israelites. In other places in the Bible, he does. He declares openly his love. Maybe we're a people who need to hear that we're loved. All of us need to hear it from somebody. When I was dating Melina, we were about two years into our like of one another. Pretty strong like. We've been dating about six months, and I had yet... Uh, to uh, declare my love for her. I had not asked her to marry me, and yet I had gone out and bought a ring. And Melinda and I had spent uh, three weeks together over the Christmas, New Year's holiday, and uh, that ring was waiting at the ring shop. I knew if I picked it up, I'd, I'd stumble all over myself dropping it on her without giving it the kind of thought I wanted to. And so it waited, and we spent three wonderful weeks together, at which I did not profess my love. We had a great time, and I, I talked around love and marriage without talking about love and marriage. I'm the guy who frustrates women, as many of the men in this room are, right? So she doesn't know that I love her, that I, I would like to marry her. And, and once she returns home, my friend Steve has this, um, well, he just picks at me laughingly to my face in front of his mom. Patty, Patty Kirk, a pastor's wife. And he says, Mom, he loves her. He's bought a ring. He spent three weeks with her and he didn't say anything. And, and she, she looked at me with astonishment and she said, Oh, Ted, women need to know these things. <laughs> oh, and my uh, 21 or 22-year-old heart sunk. She's absolutely right. I needed to declare my love. And, and now, as the great romantic I obviously am, I, I went that afternoon and called her. After being face-to-face for three weeks, I called her and declared my love. And it was awesome. She delighted to hear it. We need to hear that we're the recipient of another's love. And I bring that up simply to say, though that's not the main point of this passage, it is a good example to us, to all the fathers and all the husbands and all the moms and all the children. It's a great example that you should tell the people you love that, in fact, you love them as God himself does. And so he does openly. He freely confesses, I have loved you. And what's the response, however, here? What's the response of the Israelites? How? Have you loved us? You can almost hear the the cynicism or the the doubt and skepticism in their voices. Uh, Prove it is what's going on in their hearts. Because we're not sure anymore. How have you loved us? It's, It's easy. It's easy for believers to grow uncertain of and even doubtful of God's love. For them. That is a common experience, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Let me just highlight two for a moment. One reason is this through a false reading of our circumstances, we come to the conclusion that God, in fact, does not love us. 
where we say to ourselves, nothing is going my way. God must therefore be against me and not for me. Israel thought like that. If God loves us, you can almost hear them saying, surely there would be more power and wealth and glory in Israel. I mean, he brought us back from slavery uh, in, in, in Babylon. He returned us to our homeland. We've got these great promises in the Bible of the, of, the, of the glory of the kingdom of God under the Messiah. And we don't have the Messiah. And the temple isn't as good as Solomon's temple. And the, the people aren't as large and prosperous and populous. And it's, it's all just sort of disappointing. You can almost hear them saying, does God really love us? There's too much weakness or poverty or insecurity in their situation to to go on believing that God, in fact, loves us. They've been reading their circumstances and determining the heart of God based on those circumstances. And we do that too. We say to ourselves, this illness hasn't gone away yet. Maybe God is against me. And, And our suspicion deepens our insecurity. And then name it and claim it and health, wealth preachers come along who pile on the doubt, saying things like, absurd things like, well, you know, you must not belong to God's beloved, because if you did, God would heal you instantly. Now, none of that is true. But it can feel to us, when we're staring hard at our difficult circumstances, instead of the cross of Christ, it can feel like, God doesn't love us. That's one reason. The second reason is this. Um, We grow uncertain of God's love by forgetting the truth. Not listening again and again to his assurances of his love. There are many faithful believers who who love the Bible, who who pray, who witness for Christ, who, who themselves have a measure of love for Jesus, but who aren't quite sure God loves them or really still loves them, and they feel so insecure, they can never actually voice that out loud to others. And so they're alone in their doubts, insecure in the love of the Lord. That's a very common place to get stuck for Christians. Charles Spurgeon has this advice for you, if that's you, however. He says, I once knew a good woman who was the subject of many doubts. And when I got to the bottom of her doubt... It was this, she knew she loved Christ, but she was afraid he did not love her. Oh, I said to her, this is a doubt that will never trouble me, never by any possibility. Why? Because I am sure of this, that the heart is so corrupt naturally that love to God never did get there without God's putting it there. You see what he's saying? He's saying love for God, it's a fruit, not a root of God's love for us. As the Apostle John says it in 1 John 4 verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. If you love him, If you love him, you may be absolutely certain that the reason you love him is because he first loved you and gave you a heart.
to love him. And trust me, however small your love is for him, it's it's not how small his love is for you. We're all fickle, but he is faithful. And so this love, this is love, as we read in the service earlier, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Jesus propitiates or he he turns away the wrath of God due to us for sin. And he reconciles us to God. Hearing that, does your heart respond with love for him? If so, that's the fruit and not the root of his love for you. It's the fruit. So God declares openly. His love for his people because he wants them to be assured of it. That's the first thing. The profession of God's love. But then in verses 2 and 3 and 4 you see the preference of God's love. God's love is preferential. He seeks to assure them that he does love them having already declared it. And like a tender father he doesn't say well fine my word's gotten not good enough for you, tough, take it or leave it. I'm done talking to you. No, no, no. Like a tender father, he reasons with them. And what does he reason with them? He reasons with them over the history of God's people and the history of two brothers, Jacob and Esau, and the history of their descendants, the Israelites and Edom. Edom are the descendants of Esau. And so first, consider his words in verses 2 and 3 about the history of two boys. He wants them to think it through. And then the history of their descendants in verses 3 and 4. So verses 2 and 3 in the first place. The two boys. Jacob, I have loved. But Esau, I have hated. Now that is language that will make us very nervous. Does it mean... What I think it means, we ask ourselves. God says, well, let's think about Jacob and Esau. They had the same mother. They're brothers, aren't they? Yes, they're brothers. And Paul tells us in Romans 9 that yet before they were born, before they had either done good or bad or evil, God chose the second born Jacob. God is reminding them that he elected Jacob And he rejected Esau. He discriminated between them. He was preferential between them. God chose Jacob over Esau. He brought Jacob into the line of salvation from whom the Messiah would come as promised to Abraham and his son Isaac. And now he brings that same promise into Jacob's line. The Messiah is going to come from your family. And yet God left Esau to himself, passed by him, skipped over him. Now let me ask you this question. Was that not God's right? Was it not God's sovereign right as the king of all things to do what he wanted with the history of humanity and his promises of salvation? Was God forced, you might ask yourself this question, was God forced to take either one of them? Jacob or Esau? No. He wasn't forced to take Isaac. He wasn't forced to find Abraham, an idolater. 
and give him the great promises of the gospel. It's all grace, unmerited favor in the face of demerit. God's hand was not forced, he's free. Now, again, what of this language, though? It, it seems out of, out of place to speak of, of God hating. One of the reasons it feels out of place is because our idea of hate is so clouded by what goes on in our sinful hearts when we hate someone. I mean, oftentimes when we hate, there's, there's, we've been provoked and we're filled with malice and, and unrighteous, self-righteous anger. And we grow bitter and resentful. And then we, we get that all mixed up with the idea of hatred. And it's a very sinful thing. God is not a sinner in any way. He is not imperfect. He is perfect in all his attributes. And he does, according to this text, he does hate. He hates Esau. This is not the only place in the Bible There are many other texts we could turn to where you discover what or who God hates. You might look sometime at Psalm 11, verse 5. It says, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Or look at Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, proud eyes. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. These are the things the Bible says the Lord hates. Hate and anger can be proper emotions for resisting wrong and evil. When you love what is good, you hate what is evil. What's remarkable about this text, friends, and I want to say it flat out, what's remarkable about this text is not that God should hate the godless Esau. It is that God should have ever loved Jacob. We shouldn't be surprised that the Lord is angry with the wicked every day. We should wonder that he loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You ought to marvel at John 3.16, but it's old hat in the Christian community. We take it for granted. It's stunning. So he's, he's, he's um, in this passage, friends, he's not here speaking about what we might call God's benevolent love for all mankind, but of his saving love for his people. That's what he's talking about here. In, in God's benevolent love, As Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, God does what? God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. And so Jesus says, be like your father in heaven who does these things. And so love your enemies. 
That's what we call God's common grace, theologically speaking. God's common grace or his, his common love or general love. Nobody deserves, not because it's common, we should have no right to expect good from the Lord after our rebellion. But common in the sense is it's common to all humanity. Nobody deserves it, but everybody receives some measure of God's goodness and God's gifts. Everybody receives some measure of these things. But that is different from his saving grace or his saving love. Nobody deserves that either, but not everyone receives it. Only those who believe in Jesus receive the salvation promised in Jesus, that saving grace. Now you say to me, but but why did God love Jacob and why did he hate Esau? I want to take those two questions one at a time because they're two questions with two different answers. And you cannot give the same reason for two different things. And and, uh, you'll make a great theological mistake if you give an identical answer to both those questions. Why did he love Jacob? Why did he hate Esau? There's not an identical answer. Why did he love Jacob? Well, we know that it couldn't be for anything good in Jacob that God loved him because Romans 9 says the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, but that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calls. See, Paul says in Romans 9, uh, the reason God loved Jacob, it was what? It was sovereign grace. There was nothing in Jacob to make God love him. There was everything about him that might have made God hate him as much as he did Esau. But God was gracious to him and he loved Jacob. And because of his sovereign grace, he chose Jacob as the object of his love because God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And God will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. Now why... The next question, why did God hate Esau? Why does God hate any person? Why? And the answer we must get from the Bible is this. Because they deserve it. If God deals with anybody severely, it is because that person gets what they deserve from God. So that when we think about hell, friends, in hell there will not be anyone that will say to God, you have treated me worse than I deserve. But every lost soul in hell will be made to feel that they brought damnation on their own head as a result of their own evil works. That, that God, as Charles Spurgeon says, that God had nothing to do with his condemnation except as the judge condemns the criminal. And so what, we, what we're saying is this, if you are damned and the object of God's righteous wrath and anger, punishment for sin, and, and you are wicked and his soul hates, then what we're saying is this, it is your own fault. But if you are saved and forgiven and rescued and taken home to his heart in heaven forever, things you do not deserve, it is grace, not by your merits, but the free 
sovereign love of God to you. Now listen, if you're sitting here today and you're not sure where you are, the gospel is offered to you. Jesus offers himself to you. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will have everlasting life. You will be pardoned because God is gracious. So what you see then is God's preferential treatment of these two brothers in the history of these two brothers. And then you see it followed through in the history of their descendants in verses three and four. The Edomites, the descendants of Esau, are neighbors to Israel. They're relatives. And what had happened in their history, the backstory on this, and notice the language here, it says, um, Esau I have hated, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals in the desert. And if Edom says we're shattered but we'll rebuild, the Lord of hosts says they may build but I will tear it down. What's going on here? In, we talked about this last week. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire ransacked Israel and, and took some of the people captive after killing others. Now, what, what happened in that is this. The Edomites cheered. They cheered the destruction of Israel. They taunted the captives being taken prisoners to Babylon openly outwardly and Nebuchadnezzar spared Edom in 586 but now a hundred years later something has happened Israel has returned from captivity and rebuilt their homeland but but Edom has been laid waste the the Arab Nabataeans ransacked Edom we learn from other places in history they took full control of Edom. They drove out the Edomites from Edom and, and the Edomites never resettled in their own homeland. A lot of them ended up in southern Judah and scattered into the nations. And, and yet the Bible says, who did that? He doesn't even mention the Nabataeans. Who did it? God, it says, laid it waste. The actions of a foreign invader God attributes to himself Because he is sovereign over the rise and fall of nations. And so these Nabataeans, they were semi-nomads. They allowed the cities of Edom go to ruin. And and their grazing herds ate up much of the plant life and so destroyed any of the arable land. And if the Edomites, the Bible says, in the future should seek to rebuild, Yahweh says, the Lord says, I will oppose them and I will tear it down. Why will God do that? Why? Because look at their name. Because they are the wicked country. That is their name. They are wicked, God says. And they are the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And he will never let them return. And they never did. Edom remained uninhabited by the descendants of Esau as they disappeared. Now, I realize at this point we're talking about nations and not individuals, though what happened to the nation had a tremendously negative impact upon the individual person here. But we're talking about the nation of Israel and the nation of the Edomites. And we should stop and say this. It is, it is no more true that all Edomites were, were spiritually lost then it is true to say that all Israelites were inevitably saved. 
But what is God saying? He's saying the rebuilding of Israel and the destruction of Edom is proof of his preferential treatment to Israel. His faithfulness to his promises that they would be a people from whom the Messiah would come. That is proof of my love. And this theme, friends, this theme of God's God's preferential love is a theme everywhere in the Bible. Why do we believe this? Not not just because of a text like this, but but in lots of places the Bible teaches this, hundreds of places. In in Acts chapter 13, verse 48, it says, "As, As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Those who were appointed believed. Or in Romans 8, 28 through 29, the Apostle Paul says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Or or Jesus in John chapter 10. 27 through 29, puts it this way. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. The father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So the Bible testifies to this everywhere. And I also believe in divine election personally. Because of my own personal experience. Maybe you do too. I know the hardness of my own heart. I know, I know my own tendency to sin. And my bent on the flesh and the world. I know how hard it is for me to believe in God. And I'm a Christian. Who's been believing in God since the age of 18. I know full well. That I would never have become a Christian. And I would never have remained a Christian. Were it not for God, by the Spirit of God, drawing me to himself. Every Christian knows this. Every Christian knows this as well when they pray. How do you pray for dear loved ones who are not saved? You pray like this, whether it's for a a man, a woman, a boy or a girl. You pray, Father, save them. Because you believe that's what the Lord does. It is to his credit. It is his work. And he is sovereign and free in doing it. And friends, if we, if we, and I realize maybe this is the first time you've heard this idea. But if you resist this particular teaching, and let me just say, if this is the first time you've heard this idea, I'm glad that you've heard it once. You may have all kinds of questions. Your head may be about to explode. I understand that. I can't work through all your questions tonight, but please interact with me about these things. But if we resist this teaching, then we are going to miss out on a very precious and comforting teaching from God's word. And that is this. By emphasizing that it's God's grace that saves. That it's God's grace that causes him to love us savingly. We are saying that there's nothing in us that made him do it. The origin of it is not in us, it's in him. And because he isn't compelled by something in us, by something we do, it can't be turned away from him by something that we do. 
And so there's assurance in this doctrine, friends. And so we see the preference of God's love. In the third place, more briefly, you see preservation of God's love. Verse 5, the preservation that God's love accomplished. And it is this. Verse 5, God says to them, your own eyes shall see this. See what? The, the permanent destruction of the nation of Edom. Your own eyes will see this and you will say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. What am I getting at? Whose eyes are going to see that? Israel's eyes. So what's he promising them? That they will continue to exist for as long as the nation of Edom continues to be destroyed. That they will see this and they will know it. They've been promised it and now you see it. God's preservation of his people is a witness to his love. But then you immediately ask the question, but, but what about then? What about the destruction of Israel in A.D. 70 by the Romans when they were just obliterated and scattered to the winds? What about that? Did God's promise fail? No. Why not? Jesus came. Jesus came, who is the Israelite of Israelites, the only perfect Jew in whom all the promises of God are fulfilled. And in shrinking the kingdom into one man, Jesus, God then opened the kingdom to a multitude no man can count from every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation First, the promise came to one man, Abraham, and then through him to his descendants, Isaac and Jacob and all the rest, the children of promise, and it was perpetuated in the nation until the Messiah came. Then all the promises given to Abraham are answered, yes, in Jesus. And in union with Jesus, any who believe in Jesus are united to Jesus and are heir of all the promises. You are the the children of Abraham. You are the sons of Abraham. And the church becomes the new Israel, but made not of just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. And Gentiles from all God's former enemies, Egyptians and Assyrians and Syrians and Persians and Babylonians and Greeks and Romans and Ishmaelites and Edomites to the ends of the earth. And so what he's saying is this, God preserves Israel, and that is demonstration of his love. And they could sit there that day hearing those words and say, we're here, and they're not, and he has loved us. And the final thing is this, what do we do with this? He tells you what you should do with this. He tells you what you will do with this. You will say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. See, if you see this great and sovereign and professed and preferential and preserving love of God, what will you do with it? You will have two responses, awe and acclamation. In the first place, awe. You will see that God is great. That's why you'll say it. But first you'll see it. He didn't have to do this. He was well within his rights to cast You off. He could have passed over me, a Christian will say. And he could have left me in the misery of my wickedness and in the misery of his wrath. But he didn't. He had mercy and compassion on me. And that humbles me. And in humbling me, it makes the God of mercy and compassion great in my eyes. 
But if you say, I deserve it, I believed, I had faith, I was smarter than those people, I was more spiritually attuned to the universe than those people who didn't become Christians, if you say any of that kind of thing, then you are saying, that's why I got saved, and then you will be great in your own eyes. But the Lord will be not great in your eyes. Not only awe, though, but acclamation. Acclamation, a shout of salute of enthusiastic approval of God. That's Webster. Acclamation. You believe he should be great beyond the borders of Israel. And it gives you a missionary heart. You want for that day to come. And so what we find, friends, is this. God focused his love on Israel for a time. So that through Israel, all the world would hear of his saving love. And God focused his love on Israel, but he did not limit his love within Israel. His purpose was to reach all nations, and in Jesus, he does. And so you can rest in his love for you in Jesus, and you can be in awe, and you can acclaim it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are great. You are altogether unlike us. And you are filled with compassion and mercy. And you delight to receive all who believe in Jesus. Come to me, Jesus said. You who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I pray that you would grant us to rest in his saving love. In his name I pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand together, sing, and acclaim his love.